So how many of the Ten Commandments could you name right now? Just without looking on the spot, how many could you write down? Could you get all ten? Could you put them in the correct order? Do you know which number is which one? A congressman was once introducing a bill to put the Ten Commandments in the House of Representatives, the Senate, and courthouses. And an interviewer asked him to name the Ten Commandments, and he could only name three of them. We want to make sure that we know the Ten Commandments, but even more than that, we want to understand what God is telling us in these commandments. So let's read And we'll find the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Now, verse 1 in chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is uh, within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. These are the uh, Ten Commandments. Literally, uh, it says they're the, the Ten Words. If you ever hear the phrase Decalogue, that's what that means. Deca means ten, uh, log I uh, think lagos, it means, it means word, the ten words. That's what it literally is. Although uh, each of these commandments are more than one actual word, but they are ten statements. It doesn't actually call them the ten words here in Exodus 20, uh, but it does in Exodus 34, verse 28. And also Deuteronomy 4, 13, and 10, 4. And sometimes we talk about the two tablets of the law. And when we think of that, we shouldn't think that there was uh, these two tablets that on one had uh, maybe the first five and the second had the the second five. Uh, Some of them were longer to write out anyways. Um, 
And sometimes we talk about two tablets and maybe say that there was the first four and then, and then six. But in reality, how it probably worked is it was probably, it does talk about being two tablets. It was probably two identical tablets of all ten. Think of this, when you go and you buy a house or you buy a car, you sign a contract, usually there are two copies that are made. Uh, One for the person that you're buying from and one for the person that is doing the buying. In the same way in the ancient world, uh, when a king made a a treaty or a a covenant with a people, uh, there would be a copy that would be made for, for both parties. Uh, In the ancient world, it was called a Caesarean vassal treaty. And so the king would receive a copy, and the the vassal, the the underlings, would receive a copy as well. So in all likelihood, that's why there were two tablets, probably two identical tablets of all ten of these laws. And we know that there's there's ten. We call them the the Ten Commandments. Uh, Scripture does refer to them as the Ten Words, But you may not realize that uh, there are differences as far as what the actual Ten Commandments are. Now, Jews and different types of uh, Christian churches uh, would all agree that the things that are listed that are read are the Ten Commandments, but as far as specifically which ones are which, there's disagreement on that. The Jews, the way that they looked at it, the first commandment for them was actually what we tend to consider the, the, the prologue or the preface. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Uh, they considered that to be the first commandment. And then they combined uh, what we consider the first and the second. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make yourself a carved image. So they viewed that as together as the second commandment. Roman Catholics and Lutherans, they divided up a little bit different as well. And see, we know that there are ten commandments because Scripture tells us, but in Exodus 20 here, it doesn't number them. It doesn't say this is the first, this is the second. And so that's why there is disagreement. So um, Roman Catholics and Lutherans, uh, they have the, the preface as the preface, but they also combine the first and the second commandment, and they call that the first commandment. So when they talk about the second one, to us, that's the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But then in order to get ten, they end up dividing uh, the coveting passage into two sections. So coveting your neighbor's wife becomes its own commandment, and coveting everything else becomes another one. But Christians coming out of the uh, Reformed traditions, influenced by them, except for the Lutherans, and also the uh, Greek Orthodox Church, actually, uh, we view the commandments as um, in the way that we normally understand them. So the, the preface is in verse 2, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that's doing some important work here. It's, this is based on God, who he is, his character. This is putting this in this covenant context here for these people. Remember who I am. Remember what, what I've done for you. But then the first actual commandment, where there's actual command being given, is in verse 3. You shall have no other gods 
before me. And that's what we consider the first commandment, and that's what we're going to be uh, looking at here today. Point one, worship God exclusively. Worship God exclusively. Worship is the reason that you exist. That is why you and I were created. That's why you're here. That's why you're on earth. That's why this earth and everything else was created, so that there could be, there would be worshipers of God. You were created for God's glory. And to glorify God is to love and treasure God in your heart above everything else. When we talk about what does it mean to glorify God, it's important for us to realize what that is. It's not just building a a giant statue to him or these external things that we could do. Glorifying God isn't about... When we worship and we're glorifying God, ultimately it's not the, the sound waves that we make. We think that singing, that's what worshiping God is. If it was all about the sound waves, then... We could say we could worship, we could glorify God even more if all of the hours when no one is in this sanctuary, we just let the best praise music uh, be blasting over the speakers here on a loop nonstop if all God cared about was the sound waves. But ultimately, it's not speaker systems that project the, the glory of God. It's, it's the human heart is, is the instrument of God's glorification. God is as glorious as he has ever been or he is going to be. But when we talk about God being glorified, we mean his glory being made known, his glory being manifested, being spread throughout the world into the hearts of people. And that's part of what it means for us to be created in the image of God is that we can know and love and appreciate God's glory. Kitty cats and goldfish are not created in the image of God. They can't have a relationship from the way we can. They cannot appreciate him. They're not enough like him to appreciate him in that way, but we are because we are created for the glory of God. In fact, one uh, confession coming out of the Reformation Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism. The very first question is, what is the chief end of man? That means, what is the the most important purpose for, for people, for mankind, for humans? Why were we created? And the answer it gives is this. Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And really, those two things are not two things. Those are two sides of the same coin, two ways of saying the same thing. Because John Piper has pointed this out, really, to glorify God is to enjoy him forever. We glorify God when we find our joy in him, when our hearts love him, when our hearts exalt him, when our hearts... Uh, treasure him. And that's why sin is when we treasure something else above God. When we say, this captures my heart this much, but God, you capture my heart this much. 
That's sin. Even if this is an okay thing, we're exalting it above God. But God is glorified when we treasure him above everything else. When our hearts uh, just are enthralled with him. John Piper is also known to say it like this. This is really helpful. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And see, that's what it means to worship. It's not ultimately about singing songs or or giving money or doing certain duties. It's not about going into a church and lighting candles or uh, doing a bunch of works. It's about having hearts that are captivated by, by his glory. That we realize how awesome and how amazing he is. That we worship him above all else. And this is all throughout Scripture. The first commandment uh, just gets unpacked throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. through 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus says something similar in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is jealous about his glory. He alone deserves to be glorified. He alone deserves to be worshipped. When Scripture talks about the name of the Lord, that's also about his glorification. His name is his reputation, who, who he is. Well, we realize who he is, and, and he cares about that, and it is right for him to care about that. It is, it is good. It matches with reality. He deserves to be the center. He deserves to be the one that is on top. And it's also loving for you and I because there's nothing else that can give us the, the joy, the satisfaction, the meaning, and the purpose as knowing and loving God. That's why Jesus came. Because sin would have kept us away from that so that we would have hearts in rebellion. But as we're saved, we are given new hearts. We are, the sin problem is taken away so that we can see him and we can know him. And even better than the angels, because we not only know his holiness, we know his, his love, that he loved me, that he loved you enough to die on the cross for you. The love of God is demonstrated in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to quote a few reformers today. They've helped us with this. John Calvin wrote that the first commandment contains at least four duties. He talked about these. So the first is adoration. He talked about adoration, trust, invocation, and thanksgiving. Adoration is, is this worship. We, we do homage to his majesty. We give him the, the, the praise that he is due. And so we ought to do this when we go through life not praising him, both together as a church and individually, we're breaking this commandment when we're not adoring him 
when we're not praising him. He deserves that. That's what our hearts are created to do. Whether we're saying it out loud or we're just going through our day appreciating and, 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 and treasuring him in our hearts. Second, he said trust. This means resting in him. Calvin wrote, resting sure in him under a recognition of his perfections. That you can trust in God. You can rest in him because you know who he is and what he has promised you. And, and you have confidence in that. And that's a confidence that glorifies him. And you recognize that he is sovereign. He is good. He is wise. Even when you're going through awful circumstances, and you trust his promises that, that he does care for you, that he does love you, and you can find your rest in him rather than somewhere else. Martin Luther saw this as very central. In fact, he said, this defines what a God is to you. Luther said, quote, to have a God is to have something in which the heart entirely trusts. That's what ties with invocation. And that means, who do we call upon for help? Who do we invoke to help us? When you are in trouble, who do you call? Who are you going to reach out to? And yes, sometimes there's, we need to call 911, or you need to call friends, or you need to call church, or you need to call the insurance company. But ultimately, who are you calling out to? Is the Lord the one that we trust? He's the one that we call out to in prayer. Luther also wrote, What does it mean to have a God? Or what is God? Answer, a God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. So that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him from the whole heart. As I have often said, that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. And also thanksgiving. Who are we grateful to? Who do we see as the one that ultimately gives us every blessing? Who do they come from? Is ourselves? People around us? Think the government? Do we recognize that he is the source of every, ultimately the source of every blessing we have. I'm going to add another fifth, a fifth one here, just in case it's not clear, but love. And maybe that ties this all together. This is the core of it. Do, do we love God? Christians can be described as people, a genuine Christian is someone that, that genuinely loves the Lord their God, that loves Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as, as their highest treasure. I mean, if you think you're saved and you don't, you don't love God, that, that's not a born-again heart. We love God. That's what we were created for. And that's how we start to fulfill, finally, this, this commandment. We don't want to be like the prodigal son. Remember, he loved the father's stuff. He wanted the father's stuff. He didn't really want the father. And that's how we were as sinners. Or maybe that's how you still are. But when we're saved, we realize it's not ultimately about the stuff. We want him. We want God. He is our, is our treasure. 
So the first point was to worship God exclusively. Second point is to worship God exclusively. To worship God alone. And when I say this, this is important. We need to worship the real God of the Bible. Not some alternate God. Not some made-up God. Even if you call him by the same name. It's not enough to say, I worship God. Who do you mean when you say that you worship God? Because 94%, one survey said, of Americans say they believe in God. But it is not usually the God of the Bible. The actual God that is in, in the pages of this book, who has been revealed here, and who came down through Jesus Christ and is made known by him. It might be somebody else, something they call God, something they have concocted or they've imagined. But we're to worship God, real God, Bible God, exclusively. Worship the one true God of the Bible. The first commandment means that we need to practice biblical monotheism. There is one God. That's what monotheism is. Mono means one. Theism means believing God. One God, and he is the God of the Bible. So this implies a few things. One, no atheism. If we're called to believe in the one true God, you have to have one God, not zero gods. Atheists believe in no God. A, here that prefix means no or none. Theists, they, they don't believe that there is a God. So there's no way that they can be keeping the first commandment. Hebrews 11.6 And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the first commandment, can't be an atheist. But let me say this, because maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, I'm not an atheist. But how often are people practical atheists? We claim we believe in God, but really we live day in, day out as if there is no God. We don't look to him. We don't trust him. People that go week and week and week and, and never go to church, they live for themselves. What about a prayerless Christian? A prayerless Christian is a functional atheist. We need to believe in God and we need to act like we do. Worshiping the one true God of the Bible means no atheism. It also means no false God instead of God. No false God instead of the the true God. Atheists worship zero gods, but it's not enough to say, well, I, I worship one God, unless that one God is the, is the right God, the actual God, the real God. It's not enough just to be a monotheist. You have to have the right one. Because let's say you worship Baal in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of Baal worshipers would worship other gods as well, but let's say you said you believe Baal is the only God and, and just him alone. And you also wanted to point out, you know, the word Baal Really, it just means Lord. And so you say to some of the Hebrews, um, you say, Elijah, Hebrews, you know what? I worship Baal. 
you worship the, the Lord of the Bible, and you, you call him, see him being revealed as, as Yahweh, and I call him Baal, but it just means Lord, so it's all the same. Yeah, Elijah did not feel that way. That's not how those stories went with the prophets of Baal. These were false gods, not the right one. So you cannot have a false god instead of the real god from, from an alternate religion. It has to be the actual God of Scripture. And we know from the New Testament that, that Jesus Christ is God. That if this is a God that is not revealed to us in Jesus Christ, ultimately, in the New Testament, we see it fully revealed to us that the one God that is revealed in Scripture is the, the Trinitarian God of the Old and New Testament. That it's there in shadow in the Old Testament and fully revealed in the New Testament, one God, but in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so if your God if, is not with Jesus Christ as the Son of God, this is not the real God that exists. It's a false God. So it cannot be a false God, even if it has the same name. I picked up a book one time. It's a, a Star Trek novel, Deep Space Nine. Uh, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, Valhalla. And the reason I got it is because it is written by Nathan Archer. Now, some of you know me, and it could be possible for me to convince you that I wrote this novel. It seems like it could be something that, that, that could be a possibility. But this isn't me. It's somebody else that has the same name, alive in the same basic time, but different people. Just because you go by the same name doesn't mean they're the same. And so there are many people in the world and in America, and sometimes even in churches, that may say God. Sometimes they may even say Jesus Christ. But what they mean when you get at what they're referring to, is something completely different. We need to worship the real God. It also means no polytheism. So we can't have zero gods. We can't have one God if it's the wrong God. But we also can't have more than one. Whether it's two or three or a million, we are not to have that. So no idolatry. Whether that is a material idol made out of stone or gold or whatever it is, or just a mental idol, something that uh, we've constructed in our imagination, or some religion where there's multiple or many gods. So no atheism, no false god instead of God, no polytheism, and I, I made up this term, no autotheism. You don't get to be God either. And oftentimes we get real confused about that. People live their lives as if we are the lawmakers, we are the ones in control, we are the center of the universe. That was Adam and Eve's first sin, and that's the sin that we echo every time we try to play that part. Every time we try to say, it's all about me, I'm going to call the shots, I'm going to judge you, God, by what I think. You are not God, don't pretend like you are, and... Don't live like you are. Worship the one true God of the Bible. 
You know, trials will test to find out who your true God really is. Who are you really trusting in when things are difficult? Where will you look? Who will you trust? Third point, final point. See if you can guess what this one is. Worship God alone. Okay, worship God exclusively. I just want to focus on that. Worship is, it's like marriage. It needs to be to the exclusion of all others. When you marry your spouse, uh, you are committing to that person and that person alone. You can't say, well, I love you, honey, and I do. I just love other women too. And don't worry about that. It doesn't detract from you. No, when, when you are married, it's to the exclusion of all others. Saying yes to your wife means saying no to every other woman. In the same way, saying yes to the true God means saying no to all competitors. Again, this is what the commandment says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's talking about me, Bible God, the God that did this, that did these miracles, that did these mighty acts in history, not some abstract philosophical God or some generic God of some bare theism that's real murky. This is the actual concrete God of the Bible. And what I did for you, I delivered you. You shall have no other gods before me. This whole commandment is given in this context of uh, their deliverance. And this, this covenant foundation that he's making with them. Consider who God is and what he has done for you. When it says, you shall have no other gods before me, it doesn't mean that it's okay to have other gods as long as God is the number one. Or as long as you don't have them around. You gotta, what it means is, before me means don't even bring those in my face. Do not insult me by letting me see you worshiping some other God or doing this. And by the way, God sees us. There's nowhere we can go where we can do this behind his back. You wouldn't cheat on your husband or your wife, I would hope, right in front of them. But if you cheat on the Lord with a false God, you're always doing it right in front of him. Saying, do not have any other gods before me. Verse 5, we're going to see that God says that he himself is a jealous God. But he is jealous in a good and a righteous jealousy. See, it is not right for him to give up his glory to another it would not be right to reality and it would not be good to us. It would not be loving to us for God to pretend that he was not the most glorious, satisfying being that we should be exclusively worshiping. It would not be loving to us for God to pretend that hot sand is actually living water. He knows that you were created for him. He knows that he is the only 
source of happiness ultimately and joy that you can have. To pretend otherwise would be for him to lie. So where does the praise of your heart really go? Worshiping God exclusively will be unpopular and may cost you everything. In the days of the early church, when Caesar uh, was the, the emperor, there were often times where everyone in the Roman Empire was required to, to worship Caesar as part of their patriotic duty to have unity in the, the empire. And so people, what they were told to do is um, they would have to come and in the presence of others, they would have to at least burn a, a, a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And in some cases, that's all they had to do. But Christians wouldn't do it because they recognize that there's one God and, and Jesus alone, Jesus is Lord. And they weren't going to share that. They weren't going to give that to, to Caesar. And there were others that were tempted to, to do that. And those that, there were many that gave in to pressure. There were some that saw, said, well, I'll, I'll do this on the outside, but in my heart, I'm not really doing it. But the committed Christian said, no, we, we will not do this, even if it means, and oftentimes it did, that they would be persecuted, they would be tortured, they would be killed, sometimes in, in horrible, nasty, awful, awful ways, taken to the arena and fed to the lions or, or worse. But you know, it wasn't the fact that these Christians worshipped Jesus that got them in trouble. It's that they wouldn't worship Caesar. Because, you see, the Romans, they were okay with people having all kinds of gods. You know, you could worship, you know, Zeus, and you could worship, you know, Athena, and whoever you wanted, you could add these. And if you had some tribal deities from, you know, wherever you were before you were conquered, you could keep those gods. You could have your family gods. You could have these. Hey, have as many as you want. They said, you have to also worship Caesar as one of these. Add him to the mix. And they were polytheists, and what does it matter? But the Christians said, no, there's one God, and we will not worship any others. So it wasn't the fact that they worshiped Jesus that, that got them in trouble. It's that they wouldn't worship Caesar. They wouldn't worship these others. But they wouldn't do it. Even when it meant being dragged behind chariots, even when it meant uh, in the arena, sometimes being sewn up inside the, the carcass of an animal and let the wild animals at them and tear them to shreds. We need to worship God exclusively. And we live in a day and age as well when it, it, may, it, it will cost us if we take that seriously. So the first commandment, is this still true? Is it still true in the, the New Testament? Does the New Testament affirm this? Does it expand it? And we know it does. In Matthew twenty two thirty six through 37, Jesus says this, very similar to, 
Deuteronomy 6, he says, uh, someone comes up to him and says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He said the second is to love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. All. You're supposed to do everything to God's glory. John Calvin wrote that we must, quote, make him as it were the sole aim of all our actions. Not a particle of his glory is to be withheld. Everything belongs to him and must be reserved to him entire. And so this means that, no, you you cannot live a moral life without God. There are some people that think that they could not have God in their life and still live moral lives. Now, if morality just means you can be a kind person and get along with your neighbors and do some good things on a human level... Okay, some people can do that. But you can never be ultimately moral before God. Because the first commandment is foundational for all of this. The first commandment teaches us that true morality must be God-centered. You could not kill. You could not commit adultery. You could give to the poor and you could do all this. But are you doing it for the glory of God? If we're not doing even these good things for the glory of God, we're we're sinning by doing these otherwise good things not for the glory of God. I am not a good husband if I love everyone in the world except my wife. And in the same way, an unbeliever is not a good person if he supposedly loved every person in existence except for God, except for the one who matters most. You can't really even love your neighbor except if you love God first and then love them because of him and with his love. And if you want to hear this commandment unpacked even more, what it means to to obey the first commandment. Come back next week. And then come back the week after that. And also come to the AM service. And come, keep coming to the AM service. And actually come every time you can because, and I mean this, every, come to every sermon that we do because they are all about what it means to believe and live out the first commandment. Everything that we teach from Scripture is teaching us what it means to put God first always. Do we do this? Have you kept this commandment? Have you kept it perfect? Have you always kept God first? Always. You haven't. You've broken this one. How many of you have ever gone bowling? Anyone here bowl a 300? 
for real, without cheating, without changing the score. I think I, I've bowled over a, a 200 at least once, not 300. doesn't take much to have it go from 300 way down to 200, even with a good game. And you know how bowling works. You have 10 frames, and you have to be perfect every frame to get, to get perfect score, 300. And if you blow the first one, if you leave a pin standing or you get a gutter ball, that, that very first frame, doesn't matter how well you do after that. You're not getting a 300. Your perfect score, your chance of that is, is gone. If you and I, if we're going to measure ourselves by the Ten Commandments, as like ten frames, how well have you done so far? Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Is that going pretty good? Keeping that? The bad news is you have not. The good news is that there's someone else that has. If you blew the first frame, your chance of a perfect game is gone. But Christian, Jesus kept the first commandment perfectly in your place. And not just that commandment, but all of them. And by faith, he gives us credit for his perfect score so that we can stand before God credited with his righteousness. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you for instructing us and giving this foundation. Thank you that um, we were created for you and for your glory. Help us every day to understand what it means to put you first and to worship you exclusively apart from all others. Forgive us of our sin, of not worshiping you like we should, not doing everything unto the glory of God, having other gods, other idols in your place, Lord. Lord, help us to, to live for you. And we acknowledge that we have broken this commandment, and we thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who has kept it perfectly for us in our place. In his name we pray. Amen.